Thanks for checking out this sermon at New Beginnings. As a church, we exist to become an authentic, biblical community. That transforms our city and impacts the world. With the gospel of Jesus Christ. We want to make you aware of a few things before we begin. First, we would love to connect with you on our website. NBBCTX.org. There you can find more information about who we are. Additional resources and links to our social media network. As well as an opportunity to give. To what God is doing in and through our church. We hope you enjoy this message. Grab your Bibles. Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be as we uh, continue in our series called Who's Your One? Uh, We are going to continue to wrestle with this call to the Great Commission and answering God's call uh, to take Jesus to those around us. As you're you're turning in your Bibles, I'll just tell you, when I was in school, I was thinking about this week, when I was in school in the late 80s, early 90s, I was in elementary, kind of moving into the junior high phase, there was a, a kind of a, a, an outbreak, an epidemic at our school among our elementary age and, and junior high age uh, students that was very serious and it was widespread and it seemed like every day this was kind of a part of the conversation of this uh, health crisis that we had at our school and uh, some of you might have had the same issue, it was called cooties, it was called cooties, that was... The issue, anybody ever have cooties at your school show up? Anybody here? Uh, some of you might have been the one that started it because you brought the cooties to the school. I don't know. But there was this thing that we did when you, you kind of uh, begin to either break into groups or it was boys versus girls. There was all of a sudden this thing you had called the cooties and you couldn't touch someone with the cooties because if you got the cooties, they had it, you gave it to you and you couldn't get rid of it, right? Anybody here remember those days? I was thinking about that and I did something that anyone in their right mind would do when you're thinking about cooties. I googled, what is cooties, all right? And so there's some definitions I did not realize. I'm only going to give you a couple of them. Here's what one person said. It's a children's term for an imaginary germ or repellent quality transmitted by obnoxious or slovenly people. All right, so that's, that's what um, uh, it is. And here's another one. Cooties is a fictitious childhood disease used in the United States and Canada as a rejection term and an infectious tag game such as humans versus zombies. Never played human versus zombies. I, I didn't go there, all right? Here's another one. I love this one. An age-old disease only found in young children. <laughs> all children have this disease, but the boys have a different type than the girls. And because of this, touching or being touched by a member of the opposite sex is fatal since you have gotten their cooties. I love that. Here's, my, here's actually my favorite one, n- number four. Uh, what is cooties? Cooties is an imaginary infectious uh, disease that is uh, of the truly uncool. That's what it is, all right? So uh, if you've got cooties, you are uncool. But why do I bring this up? Here's what I'm convinced of. The more I'm around church people, here's what I'm convinced of, is that it seems like the more we immerse ourselves in church culture, we run a risk of treating the outside world like they've got spiritual cooties, where we just want to distance ourselves from the world. We want to kind of live in this little isolated, protected subculture, and we can't rub shoulders with unbelievers because we might get what they have. And so what happens is, is that we create a world where there's no meaningful relationships being built, no significant conversations being had, and it's like we just want to avoid the world at all costs. And here's the thing. What I've noticed is it's like when we first come to faith in Christ, we want all the people in our world to come to faith in Christ. But the more we immerse ourselves, we find ourselves eventually where the only people in our lives are other believers. And when we really try to avoid being contaminated by the unbelievers that are around us, we only run in circles that are people like us, and we treat the world, I think, about spiritual cooties. And here's the problem with that. 
We will not fulfill the Great Commission if that's how we live. That we have got to be men and women who pursue Jesus and understand that He's given us a mission. And our mission is not to live in isolation and kind of have our little subculture where we're only running around with people like us, but rather it is to build relationships and to have conversations and to welcome people in our life who are far from Jesus and enter into their world to a degree so that they might know the hope that we have found in Jesus and they can experience it too. Amen? And this is where we're going to be this morning in Luke chapter 15. Um, Jesus finds himself at odds with the religious leaders because he was fulfilling the mission of the Father, running to those who were far from him, uh, going to the lost and engaging the one with the gospel. And Jesus uh, is confronted by the religious leaders. And, and, And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus is going to help us understand the heart of God for the lost, and the heart that we should have for the lost. So Luke chapter 15 is where we're going to be. Uh, Luke chapter 15 is filled, by the way, with three parables. We're going to talk through all three of these parables to focus on the third one uh, the most. I'll, I'll get into more detail about that. But to understand the parables, we've got to understand verses 1 and 2 because this is the context of the parables. If you're with me, say, I'm with you. All right, look what he says in verse 1. It says, now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to hear him. I want you to think about this statement. Now the tax collectors, now we know the tax collectors. We talked about that a few weeks ago. We looked at Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was this tax collector and tax collectors were men who were traitors of their own countrymen, the people of God who were about as far from God as a person could be. They were greedy people who were stealing from their own people, working for the Roman government. So these were hated and despised, the lowest of lows. And then you have another category mentioned here and that is the category of the sinners. So this is kind of like the junk drawer for anybody who was far from God. They were just considered sinners. They don't follow uh, Jewish rituals. They don't follow the ceremonies. They're unclean. They are on the outside of what we would say is people who are accepted by God. And here's what it specifically said. It said that these type of people, the sinners and the tax collectors, were drawing near to hear Jesus. Now, this is what's fascinating about it, is that if you listen to the message of Jesus, if you read the Gospels, here's what you'll understand, is that Jesus' message was not popular um, he wasn't watering down. He was saying things like, listen, if you want to follow me, you got to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. That if you want to you have real life, you got to lose your life. you got to die to yourself. you got to pursue me. So Jesus is preaching a message that's not an easy believism, watered down message, but there was something about that message, even though it was a tough message, there was something about it that caused the tax collectors and sinners to want to draw near to hear him. And so what you find in the life of Jesus is that there was a combination of this, of this truth teller, but also of this tender-hearted man who welcomed the sinners into, the, into, into to his life, who approached them, who ate with them, who spent time with them, who invested his life in them. And it says that, that they attracted, or Jesus attracted these type of people to him. And here's what I think is amazing is that when it comes to Christianity, here's what you find out about the world Many people are turned off by religious people, but they are intrigued by Jesus. Because there's something with the, when you get the real message of the gospel, when you truly understand the person of Jesus and who he is, is that there is something about him that just says to the human heart that is longing for something real and significant, there's something there I need to discover. And this is where we as the people of God, and we've got to understand is that we as followers of Jesus should be people who don't repel sinners, but rather attract sinners. 
We should be men and women that we live with such a, 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 the, the character and the life of Christ dwelling in us that those who are far from God might not necessarily come to church the first time we ask, but they will go have a cup of coffee with us because there's something about us that, that just intrigues them because they see Christ in us. And this is what you find, the people that religion rejects, Jesus draws. And look at the response of the religious leaders. And the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and the scribes, they grumbled saying, this man receives people with cooties and he eats with them, right? This, this is in essence what they're saying. It's like all these people have this thing that we need to avoid and we avoid them. But something about this man named Jesus who's claiming to be the Messiah, he's claiming to be the Son of God, he's claiming all of these things and yet he's eating with people who we would never have dinner with. And we talked about this. He, they use the phrase in here, he receives them and eats with them. The idea is he embraces them, accepts them, welcomes them into his life. And eating with them means that he's becoming friends with them, intimate friends with them. And the religious leaders see this and they look at this and they're like, man, there is no way he can be from God because we know that God does not have a heart for people like that. That God would never allow uh, his rabbi, his teacher, his Messiah to have anything to do with people like that. And so they're grumbling here saying, who does this guy think he is? And by the way, I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago when we preached through Zacchaeus. And here's the reality is that, listen, um, uh, the gospel will always be offensive to self-righteous people. The gospel will always be offensive to self-righteous people because the gospel says that the, the, the greatest sinner is welcomed into the family of God if they will trust in Jesus. And so here's what you have. Jesus is offending everyone, so here's what he does. He tells three parables. And here is his goal with these three parables. The first parable is going to be about a lost sheep. The second is going to be about a lost uh, coin. And the third is going to be about a lost son. And in these parables, Jesus is articulating for us. He's telling these stories. A parable is simply this, that it means to, to throw alongside. So what Jesus is doing, there's a spiritual truth that he wants them to see. And so he throws a common story alongside a spiritual truth so that if you hear the story, you understand the truth. And so Jesus is going to tell these stories, and here's what he's going to articulate. This is how God feels about the lost. This is how God feels about the sinners and the tax collectors. This is why I'm welcoming them into my life. And this is why my followers should also welcome them into my life. Because I'm going to show you how God feels about the lost. How God feels about the one that's wayward. And so I want to just jump in and we're going to walk through the first two of these stories and kind of unpack them. And then the third one we're going to jump in and I'm going to walk you through some truths that we glean um, that we find in detail there in uh, those three. So look at verse three, uh, in those three parables rather. Look at verse three. So he told them this parable. He says, what man of you having a hundred sheep, if he lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the what? The one. He's going to leave the 99. He's going to go after the one that is lost until he finds it. Now notice what Jesus says here. He's using this parable. He says, what, what good shepherd, if he has a hundred sheep, but he has one of them that has wandered off, that he's strayed away, that he's gone his own direction, that he wouldn't leave the 99 who were there and go after the one. In other words, that, that what shepherd's not going to go, man, I've got, I've got 99 good sheep. Who cares about the one? I'll just let him go and let the wolves and the, the bear devour him. I'm just going to stay here and be content with my 99. He says, no, 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 no. The good shepherd is going to leave the 99 and he's going to look for the one. And then I love this, until he finds it. There's persistence there. 
He's going to search high and low. He's going to go to the mountains. He's going to walk through the brush. He's going to run through the thistles. He's going to make sure he's going to do whatever it takes, and he's going to pursue that one until he finds that one. And here is what Jesus is simply saying, is that this is how God feels about the one. This is how God treats the lost. He's going to pursue the lost. And then he says this. I love verse 6. And when he... Uh, and, 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 and verse 5, rather. And when he found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. I love this. When he finds it, he, he doesn't beat the sheep. He doesn't whip the sheep. He doesn't rebuke the sheep. What does he do? He picks the sheep up with tenderness. He throws the sheep on his shoulders and begins to rejoice. Now, just think about the mental image here. This shepherd, think about how, how inconvenient. At the end of the day, he's counting his sheep and he recognizes one is missing. It's been a long day, and now he is going to hike through the mountains. He's going to hike through the valleys. He's looking high and low. He finally finds the sheep, and rather than rebuking the sheep, he tenderly puts it on his shoulders, and it says that he goes back rejoicing. He is so overwhelmed with this, and then I love what happens next. It says, and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep, my, I found my sheep that was lost. And, and, and so he says he's going to throw a party. He's going to celebrate. This is what he's going to do. Now, here's the application. Look at verse 7. Jesus is going to apply this. He says, Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. In essence, here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, my father is the good shepherd, and he has sent me to look for the lost sheep. And you 99 are griping about me looking for the one, but the shepherd throws a party because he cares about the one. This is the point Jesus is making. And he makes the statement. He says, I tell you the truth, there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than 99 righteous people who need no repentance. There's something interesting I learned this week. There was a, there was a phrase or a saying the religious people had in the, in the day of Jesus. And here was the, the, the phrase. It said, there is, there is rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who is condemned. That would have been a common phrase that the religious leaders would have said about those who were lost, who were far from God. And, and Jesus turns it on its head. He says, no, 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 no. There'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who feel like they need no repentance. And so Jesus is, is showing us the heart of God. He's like a shepherd looking for a sheep. And then he tells another parable. He'll look at verse 8. He says, or what woman having 10 silver coins, if, if she loses how many coins? One coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. So again, he's saying, let me tell you another little story here. He says there's a woman who, and I think the coin she's losing here is not like a quarter that she lost because you're like, okay, a quarter, it's no big deal. But the picture most scholars believe is that of a, uh, of a piece of jewelry that would have been maybe given to her on her wedding day, almost like a wedding ring type value to her. So there's, there's great price, great cost, there's a price to it, but it's also sentimental value. So it's not like, you know, like if you were to lose the diamond on your wedding ring, ladies, what would you do? You would, you would search high and low, you would sweep the house, you would move furniture, you would call people to help you look for it. Or some of you who are like the diamond small, I'm going to lose it on purpose and maybe he'll give me a bigger one, right? That's not what she does. What she does is she, she realizes that I don't want another coin. I want the coin that was given to me. It has value to me, emotional value. It has, it's costly. And so what does he say she does? It says that she lights a lamp, which would have been expensive to light a lamp. 
She's burning oil to do this. She's sweeping her house, so she's laboring hard, moving furniture. And then it says she diligently seeks until she finds it. And again, this is the picture that you have. She cares so much about this coin that she's willing to do anything to find it. She wants this coin, and Jesus is saying this is how the Father feels about those who are lost. This is how he feels about them. Now look what he says again. And when she found it, in other words, she didn't stop. She finds it. She calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I found the coin that I had lost. So she throws a massive party. Does that sound familiar? It sounds like what the shepherd did when he found the sheep. Now look at verse number 10. Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. And what is Jesus doing here? He's saying to us, listen, like a woman who has lost her wedding ring or a a precious uh, piece of jewelry, like a shepherd who loses his sheep, God the Father cares deeply for the lost and he is searching, he is seeking. And this is why he has sent me, because he cares about them and he is willing to pay great price in order to see the lost return to him, even if it's just how many? It's one. And he says, and I'm telling you this, and I love this, because he says that there'll be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And then he says, in the second one, he says that, that uh, the angels of God will rejoice like this over sinners. You know what's amazing about this? That one of the things that is written in the New Testament is it says that the angels long to look into the gospel. They can't fathom the gospel. They are overwhelmed. They know the character of God and the holiness of God and the greatness of God. And therefore, when they see the gospel, they are overwhelmed. The fact that the God that has existed eternally that made them to worship him would put skin on and live among sinful humanity to redeem them. And it says that the angels in heaven, even though they are not a part of the redeemed, they are so moved by redemption that they throw a party in heaven. This is how God feels about the loss. And then you get into the third parable. This third parable is the one that we're most familiar with. What do we call it? It's called the what? The prodigal son, right? The prodigal son. A better name for this parable would be really the perfect father, not the prodigal son, because the point Jesus is making is not trying to highlight the sinfulness of the son, but the greatness and the grace of the father. And Jesus tells this third parable, and this third parable is going to be a longer, more in-depth version of the other two parables, telling the very same truth, explaining the very same thing. And you're going to see a lot of the similarities here. And and what I want to do, since this is the one that's a little more full in its story, I want to walk through, and here's what I want to do. I want to give you four things we learn, four truths about how God feels about the one how God feels about the one. Maybe this morning you are here today and you know that you're like the lost sheep or you're like the lost coin or you're like the lost son. Man, you have strayed away from God. You are far from God. And you, you, you're maybe like the, the, the prodigal son you're going to see in the story. You're living a very rebellious life and you're running from what God has for your life. And you're wondering, man, what does God feel about me? Well, what Jesus is going to give us this third parable here to help us understand what God feels about you. And what I want to do this this morning as we look at the heart of the Father, I want for those of us who have been the loss that is found, I want to ask God to give us the heart of the Father. Amen? And so I'm going to give you four truths about the heart of the Father that we find, the heart that He has for the one. Here's the first one. Write this down if you're taking notes. Uh, The first thing you need to see is that God loves the one. Is that God loves the one. And this is what He's been reinforcing the entire 
uh, passage of Scripture. I want you to see the progression of what happens and why this first truth is important. The progression of the stories is pretty amazing when you look at it. The first story is a lost what? It's a lost sheep. Now, apparently, this sheep has value to the shepherd, but let's be honest. A sheep can be replaced pretty easily, right? The sheep are going to have, they have an expiration date. They're going to live and they're going to die. And so you see this, this parable where the shepherd apparently loves this sheep. And so even though he could replace it, he doesn't want to. And so he tells the story. And then the next story, you have something a little more irreplaceable. You've got a coin, this, this, this family heirloom, this thing that's precious and has sentimental value. And so the next story is about a lost coin. So you go from a sheep that valuable but replaceable. Then you now you've got something that's expensive and not as replaceable, right? So now you have something that has emotional attachment. And so you see Jesus is kind of telling even more greater value or deeper love that a person might have. But then when he gets to the third parable, what is lost? It's a son. It has infinite value. And so you see this progression that he says, okay, a shepherd is going to look for a sheep, and that makes sense. And a woman who loses this precious jewelry is going to look for it. But if you lose your son, there's nothing you wouldn't do to find your son. If you lose your child, there's no ends. There's nothing you wouldn't give up or places you wouldn't go to find your son. And the point Jesus is making is, is that God loves us as his children. He loves us. He loves the one. Just like we love our children. God loves us. And this is why he says what he says. I love this. Look at verse 11. And he said, there was a, a man, a father, who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And it says he divided his property up among us. So the parable starts out with this father who loves his son, but his son comes to him. I want you to listen to the rebellion here. And this is a fascinating story. Because this, this, this son comes to his father, he's the youngest son, and he says to the father, Father, when you die, I've got an inheritance coming to me. In this particular day and time, the older son would have gotten two-thirds of the inheritance. The younger son would have gotten one-third of the inheritance, but they would have not gotten the inheritance at all until the father was dead. And so when this son comes to the father and says, give me my one-third of property that's coming to me when you die, in this particular culture, the son, in essence, is saying to the father, I wish you were dead. I'm going to treat you as if you were dead. Just give me my money, and I'm moving on with my life. Think about the devastation if your child came to you and said, Dad, I hate you. I don't care anything about you. I wish you were dead. In fact, you are dead to me. So just give me what you're going to give me when you die, and I'm just going to go and do my deal. Think about the gut punch that you would feel. But this is exactly what Jesus is saying has been done to the Father. You know what Jesus is explaining to us? This is the condition of humanity. This is us in our lostness. In essence, in the, in, the, in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, God created everything for their enjoyment so that he could, he could walk with them and enjoy fellowship with them and provided for them because a good father gives good gifts to his children. But they had all of these things. But the most prized possession that Adam and Eve had in the Garden of Eden wasn't the trees and the fruit and the beauty. It was the father. And what did they say? We'll take your stuff. We don't want anything to do with you. And that has been the condition of the human heart ever since, that we say to the God, the Father, I don't want you, but I do want your stuff. This is the rebellion of the human heart, and God loves us, and his children have abandoned him and have rebelled against him and have rejected him all 
together. And, and here's what it says that the father does because he loves his son. He divided the property up and he gave it to him. Like he didn't have to do this. In fact, according to Levitical law, because of the attitude and the behavior of the younger son, he could have had the community stone his son and put him to death. But that's not what he does. He, in love and grace and mercy, gives the son what he's asking for. And by the way, so, so here's what we know. We know that God, our Father, even though we have rebelled against him and we are deserving recipients of the wrath of God, that we deserve not another moment on the planet, not another breath, not another second in, in, in life. We deserve his torment forever. Yet God graciously gives us common grace every single day. There are some of you who are believers in this room and there are some of you who are not believers in this room and you are breathing the same air. And when you leave, you're going to feel the same sunshine or rain. And in Texas, you could get both today. It's the common grace of God that says you've rebelled, you've ran, but I, I love you. You know what's interesting about this passage of Scripture? When he gives him the inheritance... You know, sometimes God will give us what we want so that he can show us what we need. Sometimes God will say, okay, you, you, you want that, not me. I'm going to give you that because I'm going to help you understand that what you need is me. God loves us like a father loves his son. God loves the one. Look what happens next in the story. You kind of see where this thing is going. It says, not many days after the younger son uh, gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country and there he squandered his property. So the picture is he's going outside the covenant community, going to Gentile territory, and there he squandered his property and reckless living. The word prodigal, when we talk about the prodigal son, oftentimes we think of it as uh, the, the runaway son or the lost son. The idea, though, is it's really more of the wasteful son, the reckless son. That he took the father's inheritance and he, went and just, he, he wasted it all. He just partied it up and he just lived like he wanted to live. But look, listen to what happens here. It says, and when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in that country and he began to be in need. So here's what happens. Sin runs its course. He packs up his bags. He, he goes with the father's inheritance. He's just living like he wants to live. But eventually the party ended. I want you to hear me say this this morning. For some of you right now, there is this tension in your heart. You've been maybe pursuing Jesus or maybe been kind of in proximity to the church, but you're not so sure this is the life that you want to live. And maybe for some of you, you're ready to walk out on a marriage. And some of you, you're ready to walk out from under your parents' uh, principles and what they have, uh, have raised you to live in accordance to in regards to your faith. And you're at a place you're like, man, I just want to cash in and I want to go do my deal and live my life and have no rules. And I just want to live for me. You're well. Welcome to go do that. But here's one thing you need to know. There is going to be a moment where you will experience the end of the party. And you're going to be in need. This, this young man's coming to the end of himself. You can make that journey and you can, you can cross and say the grass is greener. What you're going to find there, listen, uh, the, the weeds are just as bad. And they will eat you up and destroy your life. Listen, sin, the scripture says, is fun for a season. But eventually, listen, you will reap a harvest of what you've sown. This, this younger son reminds us that sin can taste great, but it has a bitter aftertaste. And this is what the young man experiences. Listen to what happens next. This is where the grace of God just steps in and overwhelms us. 
It says, and he had spent everything in a severe famine arose in the country and began to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens in that country. The emphasis there is, is, is this is not Jewish territory. So he's now working for uh, the Gentiles, the unclean. And it says, and they sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods the pigs ate. And no one gave him anything. This is what I love about the parables of Jesus. Like and a good parable is always going to have that <gasps> moment. And I, I really believe in that day when Jesus said that, like the crowd was like, oh, this boy done gone crazy. That's what they, they would have seen. Because here's what's happening. This, this kid packs up, he leaves, disrespects his father, wastes everything, and now he's living in Gentile territory, working for an unclean person, and now he is serving and feeding unclean animals. The picture Jesus is painting is that he is at the bottom of the barrel, that he has hit rock bottom. His life is busted, broken. He's as far from God as a person can be because not only is he serving the unclean animal, he is desiring to eat what the unclean animal is eating. He, he is empty inside, and he's craving for something to fill him. This is where sin leads to. It always leads to greater hunger, and greater brokenness to where we feast on things we never thought we would feast on. We must guard our, our hearts. But I believe what's happening in this young man's life is the grace of God at work. God is bringing him to the end of himself so that he can experience the love of the Father that hasn't ended. I love what happens next in the story. I love this. He says, um, uh, but, he, but when he came to himself, I love that. In other words, this guy has been living like he's lost his ever-loving mind. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread and I perish here with hunger? I will arise and I will go back to uh, my father and I will say to him, I love this, he starts talking to himself and rehearsing the speech. Like he comes to his sense, if he wakes up one day, he's like, what am I doing? Have you ever been there? Well, you took the path that you thought was right and you, you, it led you just to dead end after dead end. And finally you're like, what am I doing here? This is where this guy is. And he says, okay, I, my, the, the servants at my dad's house has it better than me. And so here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna go back. And he starts rehearsing this speech. I remember one time uh, there was a kid that, uh, um, like he kind of bullied me around when I was younger. He was an older kid. And, uh, and I got so angry at him, and I did something so stupid. I ran over, rather than punching him, hitting him, yelling, and whatever I should have done, maybe to an adult, maybe that would have been a good idea. I go, and I just run, and I kick the side of my parents' car. <laughs> to this day, I, I can feel myself going through the air going, what am I doing? <laughs> and, and it dented the whole side of it. Like, I'm talking like, I, I, I rehearsed a speech to give to my dad. Like, there were eight of them, Dad, and I don't know what happened to the car. I think my head hit it. They were beating me up. You know, I, I, I had all this whole speech, and my dad was like, you a liar. That's what you are. And so this is what's happening. This boy is, is rehearsing this speech. This is what happens next. It says, it says that he, 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 here's what he's going to say to his father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. Here's what's happening. This is a beautiful gospel moment in the heart of this young man. This is what we would call repentance and confession. That he's not just feeling sorry for himself or feeling guilty about his life choices. He's not just there going, what does my life come to? And I'm just going to keep going deeper and deeper and deeper into sin. No, it says he came to himself and he says, I've got to get back home. I'm going to go home. I'm going to leave where I am and I'm going to go back where I belong. 
And the speech that he's talking about, it's just confession. Father, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm broken over it. Listen, repentance and confession are both necessary for us to experience the grace of God. This is what repentance is. Repentance is not being sorry for what you've done, feeling guilty about what you've done, and, and just saying, God, I'll try never, never to do it again. Repentance is leaving where you are and going back to where you left. You know what I'm talking about. If you've been in the airport and you're in a hurry, or maybe at, at, you know, in a busy mall or something, and you just got to go to the bathroom so bad, like you're not seeing clearly, and so you just walk into the first restroom. You've ever, you, and have you ever done it? And you walk in and you're in the wrong restroom. Anybody here? Yeah, some of you in this room. Yep. And, and what do you do in that moment? Like ladies, for you specifically, if you walk into a restroom and there are urinals in there, you went the wrong way, all right? What do you do in that moment? You don't stop and be like, oh, I'm so sorry I'm here. I don't know why I'm here. While I'm here, do you have a bathroom I can use? Or you're not going to do that. What do you do? Well, you don't say anything. You just run out of there and you might stand at the door apologizing to everybody when they come out, right? That's repentance. It's not staying where you are. It's leaving, saying, I don't belong here. I'm getting out. That's what's happening with this young man. He's leaving. He's repenting. And I love what happens next. This is where we get the second truth about how God feels about the one. Listen, God loves the one. God pursues the one. God pursues the one. Listen to what happens next. It says, um, and he arose and he came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, listen to this, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Now I want you to get, get what's happening here. Listen, how does God feel about the one? He pursues the one. We see this in all three stories, just a little bit different. In, in the story number one, the, father, the, the shepherd leaves the 99, runs into the mountains, looks tirelessly for the sheep, puts it on his shoulder, and returns home. In the, in the story of the woman and the coin, she rips her house apart because she can't move on with her life until she finds the coin. But what you find with the father is this. It says that while he was still a long way off, he saw him. Why did he see him? Because he was looking for him. I just wonder, and it's in my imagination, if you, you kind of picture the story in your mind, this father maybe every morning coming out, and he goes to the edge of the property, and he's looking in the horizon, and every single day, God, bring home my son, and I'm looking for my son. I just want him to come home. I, I'll, I'll embrace him. I love him. I want him to return. And every day, he goes, and he's glancing, and he's looking, and he's waiting, and he's pursuing every single day until one day, he looks up, and he sees a silhouette, and man, he's like, man, it looks like my son, and then he sees it is his son, and the scripture says that he runs to him. He embraces him and he kisses him. Why? Because he's pursued him. By the way, the description here of how the father behaved, this is another moment in the audience. Because no Jewish man with honor would have ever, one, ran to his son. He would never run for any reason. He would have stood right there and waited for his rebellious son to come home. In order to run, he's wearing a long cloak that most men would have wore. And the only way to, 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 to run would have been either to take the cloak off, the, the robe off, or to tuck it in his garment and run. Either way, it would have been highly inappropriate for this man to run and to run in the way he would have had to run to the son. When he gets the son, it says that he grabs him and he, he kissed him. The language suggests not a, 
welcome home, son. It was a kiss, and he kept on kissing and kept on kissing. He's, in, he's acting in a way that no respectable man would have acted. But listen, this is a man who doesn't care about what others think of him. The only thing that's on his mind is my son, whom I've loved, whom I've pursued, is now home again. And this is how God the Father feels about the lost. He pursues the lost. Some of you this morning, you came into this room, and here's what you need to know. Your coming today is the Father pursuing you to bring you back home. The story goes on, and this is where we find the third truth, that God loves the one, God pursues the one. Listen to this, God restores the one. God restores the one. I love this. Remember the speech he developed? Like he had this long speech, and I mean, he had it down. Listen to what he does here. And it says, um, and uh, in, in, in verse uh, number 21, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Speech is going good so far, but look at verse 22. But the father said, the father interrupts him. Like maybe he's got his cue cards and he's like, okay, I said the first part. And as he's flipping them, the father just interrupts. He doesn't even get to finish the speech. Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. What do we see here? We see full restoration. The shepherd puts the sheep on his, on his shoulders and carries him back to the pen. Restoration. The woman finds the coin, and now she has it as a part of the jewelry. She, it's restoration. And now here's what you see. The father interrupts the speech and says to him, no, 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 no. Hey, get the best robe, not just a robe, the best robe. Uh, who would have owned the best robe? The father. Put a ring on his finger. What is the significance of the ring? It would have been the family signet ring. It would have been the authority of the family. He could have done business transactions on behalf of the father because he wore the ring of the father. This was the, 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 the ring of authority. And then he says, put sandals on his feet. Why? Because the servants didn't wear sandals, but the son did. Here's what you find, full restoration. You are clothed in the robe of the Father. You are now the Son of the Father, restored to full position. You have shoes. You are a son. You belong in the house. And this is the picture of what Jesus does for every single person who would come to the end of themselves, who would realize where you are is not where you need to be, and would turn from your sin and embrace what Christ has, ha has, has provided for you in his death. You will be clothed in the robe in the righteousness of Christ. You will be given a position in the family, and you will be called sons and daughters daughters. No matter who you are, where you've been, how far you've gone, the lost, when they're found, they are fully restored, which leads me to number four. God celebrates the one. God celebrates the one. Look what he says here in verse number 21. I love this. He says, um, sorry, verse number uh, 22, rather, and the father said to, to the servants, bring quickly the best robe, put, on, put it on him, put the ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fattened calf and kill it, and let us celebrate and eat. For, my, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to celebrate. Does that sound familiar? The father is doing what the shepherd did and what the woman who lost the coin had done. They had thrown a massive party. Why? Because God celebrates when sinners Repent and return and are saved. 
that he celebrates. Heaven rejoices. Heaven throws a party. Do you realize this morning, we've seen baptisms today of, 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 of women who have gone from death to life. They have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the moment you gave your life to Christ, there was a party in heaven. The angels applauded. They sung and they celebrated. And the Father and the Son rejoiced because this is what they do when lost are found and restored. Heaven celebrates and what Jesus is saying to these Pharisees and religious leaders, you have got it all wrong. You are, rebuking, you are rebuking the very thing that God rejoices in. You are offended by what God throws a party for. Listen, we have got to be careful as men and women who say that we are followers of Jesus, who are part of the bride of Christ, that we never get to the place where we no longer celebrate the things that God celebrates. This is what the older brother does. Look what happens in the story. This is now the older brother in verse 25 was in the field and he, and he came and he drew near to the house and he heard the music and dancing. Like, think about this. He's going, there's a party going on. What's happening here? He pulls up. He gets to the house out of the field. He's been serving. He's been working. He's not out living wild life. He's just doing what the father wants. Verse 26, and he called one of the servants. He says, hey, come here. What does this thing mean over here? The servant said to him, your brother has come home. Your, your, your father has killed a fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. And I think the servant probably was like, can you believe this? Your brother came back. That's what the party is for. Your dad is overwhelmed. How exciting is this? Not so fast, right? But he was angry. And he refused to go in. I want no part of this. I don't want to go to the party. His father came out. And I love this. You know why I love this? It's because the father has as much love for the prodigal son, the prideful son, as he does the prodigal son. The father came out. He has his heart to heart. Son, we've had to celebrate. We had to celebrate. He's like, oh, wait a second. No, 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 no. I have served you faithfully. I have done everything you've asked me to do. I, I've, I've, all these years, I have labored in your field, and I've done all of these things, and not once have you given me a goat to have a party with my friends. He's so consumed with what he has done that he is not marveling at the grace of the Father. And, and honestly, he has not even acknowledged that the grace that the Father had given him. You're not in right relationship. You don't have th this as your inheritance in the future because you've earned it, but because the Father graciously is going to give it to him. And the Father just looks at the Son and he says, Son, all these years you've had me. And look around, all of this is yours. But your brother has returned and we had to celebrate, we had to sing, come and, and let's, let's celebrate together. And he refused to go in. Believer, listen to me. This is a scary place for those of us who get comfortable in church. It is quite possible for you to serve in the house of the Father, but not have the heart of the Father. It is possible to serve in the house of the Father, but not have the heart of the Father. 
And we've got to guard ourselves. And here's what Jesus is doing. This, 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 this uh, parable, is get, this is the gut punch at the end. So Jesus is being confronted in, 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 in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. What are you doing hanging out with these sinners, these tax collectors, these, these nobodies? Why are you hanging with them? We, self-righteous, religious people, we would never have anything to do with them. God would never have anything to do with them. So he tells these three stories. And at the very end, here's the punchline. And everything in the story comes clear. The older son represents sinners and tax collectors. The father represents Jesus, who has come on behalf of the father to find the son. The older brother represents the religious self-righteous, who doesn't have the heart of the father, and yet is being pleaded with, hey, come join the party. Come join the party. For those of you who've been Christians for a long time, I want you to hear me say this, and I want you to hear this as a harsh rebuke, but I want you to hear your pastor say this. Woe to us if we ever stop celebrating what God celebrates. Woe to us when we get to the place where we are no longer moved we no longer celebrate. We no longer lose our minds. And God, are you kidding me? You, you took that, that prayer. I know their life. And you, your grace and your mercy is more than I can comprehend. I want to join the party and celebrate what heaven is celebrating. Woe to us if we ever get to the place where people being saved becomes common. Because listen, the next step is you'll begin to be annoyed by it when you stop celebrating it and offended by it. And I've seen this in churches. Churches die. Listen to me. You know what the death of a church is? Churches die when it becomes a house full of self-righteous people who are no longer moved by the grace of God, no longer celebrates what God celebrates. Because when you no longer celebrate what God celebrates, you no longer pursue what God pursues. It's a scary place to be. A couple of weeks ago, we had a party that we threw because more than 20 people were going public with their faith in baptism. It was an unbelievable party, by the way. You were there, you know that. But on most Sundays, we run about 2,200 people in worship. We had 200 show up for that. And I'm not rebuking you. You may have had great reasons not to be there. But we got to be careful that we never get to the place where we stop celebrating. We're like, yeah, I know we're going to have this big battle. We're going to celebrate life change, but there's a ball game on. Or I want to do this with my, it's been a long week. Listen, that's beginning stages. I, I want to guard new beginnings from ever becoming a place where salvation and the grace of God ceases to amaze us. Because if we get there, we die. We die. You know what I love? I love this section right here. I'm going to tell you why. Because of what happened a few moments ago when our sisters were baptized. This is, this is my favorite. 11 o'clock service, by the way, baptisms are my favorite thing at New Beginnings. You just need to know that. 
Because I, I love, the, 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 this is a, a group of ladies, part of a ministry, and they lose their ever-loving mind when a sister uh, proclaims that she's trusted in Christ. Why? Because they're celebrating what God celebrates. They're celebrating what God celebrates. They're celebrating restoration. They're celebrating life change. They're celebrating the fact that God loves the lost. And listen, we could take some cues from our GB girls. We should never get over it. That God is so amazing that all of us, though we are sinners, he says to us, I'm going to call you my son. I'm going to call you my daughter. You don't deserve me, but I'm going to give myself to you because I love you and I've pursued you and I've restored you and I've celebrated all of that. And listen, church, if we want to be a church that's on fire for the kingdom of God, then we may become a church that loves the world like God loves the world, that pursues the world like God pursues the world, and that celebrates salvation like God celebrates salvation. And when that happens, the walls cannot contain us in this place. And there'll be no price too high, no cost too great, no place too far. Because we'll be swept up in the movement. I'm going to ask you to do me a favor. Stand if you would. I want us to just pray. And then we're going to marinate. Our, our staff will be here for a few moments to receive you. But I want us to pray just for a few moments and, and, and let this song that the band is going to lead us in, you, it's a familiar song to you that we just sing it and marinate over it. And ask yourself three questions. And this is really, depending on where you are, you may only ask yourself one question. The first question is this, are you the prodigal? Are you the lost sheep? Are you the lost coin? And maybe today God is calling you and saying, hey, come be found. If you're the lost coin, lost sheep, lost son, then today here's what you need to know. God can restore you right now today. Give your life to Christ. Come and speak to one of our ministers, they would love to lead you into a relationship with your Savior. The second question is, for some of you, are you the older brother? Are you the prideful son? Have you become jaded and arrogant in your own self-righteousness that you've lost a heart for the lost? Ask God to break you. Here's the third question. Are you walking in the heart of the Father? Do you love like he loves, pursue like he pursues? Are you celebrating what he celebrates? As you wrestle with those questions, let's just respond and sing and worship and let God do a work in our hearts this morning. Let's sing.